Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, here to break down the Cleveland Indian system today, and to do that we're joined by Teddy Cahill. Teddy, a Cleveland native, has been doing the Indians' top 10 for us at BA for a long time now, I believe since he, uh, he's been here the last five or six years. Teddy, the Indians are in kind of an interesting place right now. We saw them have a great run, three straight division titles and a World Series appearance from 2016 to 2018. They missed the playoffs last year. They traded Corey Kluber. There's been rumors all offseason about a Francisco Lindor trade. When you look at where the franchise is right now, I think from the outside looking in, you wonder, okay, is this kind of the start of the decline phase? Is that accurate or how do you kind of assess where they are and, and just what road they're kind of taking here? So I would say that the window that has ex- has been open, you know, the you, you mentioned since uh, you know since sixteen, everything that they've done. So the window that that kind of opened then, I think it's still open for at least another year. They still have another two years of Francisco Lindor, another year of Carlos Santana. Um, I mean, yes, some guys have cycled out. Michael Brantley left as a free agent last year. Jason Kipnis is unsigned right now, and presumably will not be back in Cleveland when the season begins. Corey Kluber got traded. Trevor Bauer is now gone. Uh, but, but I think that enough of the core is still there. You have Lindor, you have Jose Ramirez, you have guys that have emerged like Clevenger and Bieber. Santana left and is back now. Uh, you know, so there, there are a good number of, of the, these core pieces that are still there that are still under, that the group is still under control for another couple of years that I think that 2020 uh, should, should at least still be within that window as long as they keep Lindor. Now, if Lindor were to be traded, uh, that changes things. But as long as you have one of the game's three best players, probably, uh, and everything else that's around him, I, I think that the, the window is still open. What happens in a post-Lindor world is going to be different. And obviously executing that transition is going to be critical for the, the front office and for the franchise. Uh, but, but right now, as long as Francisco Lindor is on the team, I, I don't think you're, you're in a decline phase. And one thing to keep in mind here is this Indians team, even though they missed the playoffs, they won 93 games last year. They were in the wild card hunt really until the last week of the season. That despite the fact they were without Corey Kluber for most of the year, despite the fact they traded Trevor Bauer at the deadline, despite the fact they were missing Jose Ramirez for a chunk of the year with injury, and they were missing Francisco Lindor at the start of the year as well. They had a lot of things go against them, and they still won 93 games. I think the combination of that, as well as the fact, and we'll get into this, this farm system is historically young. Uh, we at Baseball America looked at it. This is the youngest top 10 since the 2005 Yankees. Seeing the youth of their top prospects and how most of them are pretty far away, given that they are having success at the major league level. And even after trading Corey Kluber for a return that was surprisingly light, they still have a really good staff. It seems like this is a team that 
probably should go for it again and try and compete here in 2020 and into 2021 for the reasons you stated, as well as the fact this is not a farm system that's ready to replace star level talent this year or next year. It's probably two, three, four years away. Yeah, that's 100% my belief that they need to go, if not all in, because a Cleveland franchise can never really afford to be all in. Uh, but they need to go in on at least 2020. They should not be trading Francisco Lindor in 2020. I understand that once you get out of this season, the return is going to be lesser. Um, you know, the Red Sox are finding that out with bets right now. The Orioles went through that with Machado. But as long as you have Lindor, it's a, it's a big deal. And right now, when you look around the division, you know, yeah, the Twins are, are in this and, and are coming off of a, a really incredible season. Uh, but I, I think you, there are some questions about whether that's repeatable from the pitching side. Obviously, the offense continues to ramp up in Minnesota, but uh, their pitching is not world-beating. And, and, yeah, they won 100 games. But, you know, the White Sox are – clearly gearing up but I don't know that anyone really thinks that they're going to be serious contenders in 20 that looks more like a 21 situation and so if I was the Indians I would be trying to milk this uh, get the most out of this this year Uh, then maybe you move on from Lindor and and acknowledge that the White Sox might be kind of moving in and and you need to take a step back for a couple years to retool but for 2020 I would definitely be in on that and I don't think Kluber the, the, the trade of Kluber changes that in any way because Corey Kluber wasn't there in 2019 and no one knows Corey Kluber's health better than the Indians. And I'm not saying that he got traded because they think he's never going to be the same, but at the same time, he's, you know, he, he's not getting younger. He's into his thirties already. There are a lot of innings on that arm. You're banking on a lot uh, for a guy that only had, you know, one year left, um, you know, another player option, but uh, you know, wasn't, uh, an inexpensive option. Uh, you know, so I, I think that there's every reason still to believe that contention is possible in 2020 and that you should be going for it in 20. One thing we've seen the Indians do time and time again, for my money, they have one of the best pro scouting staffs in baseball. They kind of rebuilt their outfit on the fly last year. So we've seen the Indians have this ability to acquire guys and rebuild some position groups on the fly, which bodes well. Uh, we talk about all their young pitching and, and there's a lot of talent there to work with. Most of their prospects, as we've talked about, are probably going to debut in a couple of years. One guy who's a little bit closer is their number one prospect, Nolan Jones, a third baseman, reached double A last year for the last half of the season, still very young, still has some things to work on. But you can see a path, especially with some injuries ahead of him, where maybe his debut does come in 2020. In your discussions with evaluators, both inside and outside the Indian system, Teddy, how much of a slam dunk was it that Nolan Jones was number one and ultimately what made him that top prospect? Yeah, I thought it was pretty clear cut that Nolan Jones is, is their number one prospect. Tyler Freeman, who comes in at number two, and I know we'll get to, is, uh, is a really nice prospect in its own right, uh, but is further behind Nolan Jones and doesn't have uh, the power that Nolan does. Now, Freeman does play up the middle and Nolan Jones is over at the hot corner. So there is some, some value in that, but there's questions about whether Freeman's a shortstop and, and all that goes into that. So just the impact potential that Nolan Jones has with his power, uh, with as well as you know, he handles the strike zone, as, as much back control as he has, and just the consistency with, with which he has gone to his power throughout his career uh, made it 
fairly clear, at, at least to me and, and, and most of the people I talked to, that, that Nolan Jones was the Indians' top prospect. Um, and, and it doesn't hurt that he is, you know, in, in one of this, in, in this youngest farm system or, or top 10 in the last 15 years, he's the one guy that has experience at double A, basically. So uh, there's, there's a proximity factor there. There's an impact factor there. Uh, and both of those favor Nolan Jones, and, and that's why he tops the the list right now. Yeah, going to the Futures game in Cleveland last year, he was actually the guy that jumped out to me in a lot of ways simply because of how big he is. Um, he's listed at 6'2", 185 on MILB. That is very, very clearly an old measurement. I was really impressed with how physical he is, how much room he still has to add strength. And a lot of ways, talking to evaluators, they kept going back to that. You know, right now, it's not a ton of home run power. It's a respectable amount. Um, but they think he's going to get a lot bigger, a lot stronger. And you already see someone who has a tremendous eye for the strike zone, 409 on base percentage last year. That's been a constant throughout his minor league career. Growing power, field ahead, great physicality that you can project on. It does seem like this is someone that isn't just the top guy in the Indian system, but someone who's rising uh, just in the prospect world in general. We had him as the number 50 prospect in baseball this year. That was up from the 90s last year. And I don't think it's too crazy to suggest he could really break out and, and shoot up the rankings even further this year if a couple of things kind of break his way. Yeah, we've come a long way from me literally having to go into the top 100 meeting a year ago to, to bait on the table and, and make sure that Nolan Jones made the 100 to, to him now being number 50. And, you know, I, I think there is more room for growth. He's, he's relatively young for, uh, for, for his level. Um, you know, he's a uh, he'll turn uh, 22 in May and he, he's already at double A and I don't think he needs much more time uh, in, in the minor leagues. I, I think that, you know, you can be looking at um, him opening this spring in Columbus or, or if he doesn't open there, he'll get there very soon. And then at that point, you know, I, the Indians infield obviously is somewhat in flux going forward. Um, but Jose Ramirez, him being a third base doesn't have to be blocking Nolan Jones. Uh, he can play second base. He's done that before. He's very good at that. And, and so, you know, I don't think there's anything really standing in Nolan Jones's way of, of getting to the big leagues once he, once he proves that, that he's ready for that. Yeah, in terms of Nolan Jones' defense, I remember talking to you on the podcast about this two years ago. It was very, very rough. That 2017 season at Mahoning Valley made 22 errors in 53 games. A lot of concern about whether or not he was reliable enough to play third base. Really took a step forward in 2018. Uh, got a lot, lot better. Still room to grow. Took another jump in 2019. Uh, fielding percentage, uh, 929. Up from 902 the year before. Up from 835 the year before that seems like he's really, you know, kind of honed in his defense and become a lot more reliable over there. Does he project as a third baseman long-term, or is there still some sense he's probably going to end up left field first base? You know, I, I think some of that depends on who you talk to right now. I think the Indians are feeling pretty good about Nolan Jones, third baseman. He spent a lot of time working with Travis Fryman to get better over at third base. Uh, they, they've, they've invested a lot in, in getting him to be a good third baseman and not just betting on his bat at, at left field or, or first base. Now, he is athletic enough to make that happen, but he has not been asked to play anywhere but third base. And that's kind of rare in the Indian system that, you know, you usually see the Indians try and give these guys some versatility. And so maybe that'll come this year. Maybe in Columbus, he's, he's asked to, to play somewhere else. Uh, just so he can have a little more versatility for when he gets to the big leagues. 
But I think right now they view him as a third baseman. That's where he's, he's likely to at least play early in his career. And, you know, we'll see, like you mentioned, it's a big body and he's not necessarily done growing. So we'll, we'll see where all of that ends up, but he's worked hard at it. The Indians have worked hard at it with him. And I, I think that all the tools are there for him to play third base as long as he stays pretty well uh, advanced athletically. And even if he doesn't, I think it's important to point out, just talking to evaluators throughout the year, I got a lot of six hits, six powers on him. That plays anywhere, any position. You're still talking yes. about a potential impact bat. So if he can play third base long-term, awesome. If not, it's not like, you know, it destroys his value to the Indians franchise moving forward. But you mentioned Tyler Freeman at number two. Very, very different player. This is more the small, instinctive baseball rat type. I remember making calls on him out of Etiwanda High School here in Southern California. And, you know, one of the things with Freeman is it's so cliche, but – it is kind of true. Just that winning instinctive ball player. He took Etiwanda, which was a, a basketball school with really no baseball history, turned it into a CIF champion in Division II Southern section, which for those who don't know, is one of the best divisions of high school baseball in the country. He was facing D1, you know, multiple D1 players and future pros every game. He's gone out. He's done nothing but perform. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I still hear the same things like, look, he's a good player. I don't know if he's a utility guy versus an everyday starter, but everywhere he's gone, he's hit. Everywhere he's gone, he's performed. Everywhere he's gone, he's stolen bases and made all the def defensive plays he's supposed to. It feels like this is the type of guy that is going to be overlooked by some traditional scouting methods, but you look up in a couple years and he's starting in the big leagues and, and playing for a first division team. Yeah, I think the the thing about him that, that helps him to maybe not get overlooked is that, and, and the reason why we're even talking about him at number two is that he just produces. And you know, maybe in a previous iteration of, of baseball and, and, and scouting, it would just kind of fly under the radar that this dude hits 320 and, you know, it, he just doesn't look the part and, you know, who really cares or, or whatever. I don't know. But right now, um, you know, he does all these, all these things so well. He puts the bat on the ball consistently. He's, um, you know, everywhere he goes, he hits – and, you know, you, you talk about those intangibles, the, the winning stuff, it's all there with him. And, and that stuff plays. And that's part of the reason why he's been able to move quickly. Um, you know, he, he spent his first full pro season uh, in the New York Penn League. And then last year, he, he gets all the way up to, to high A, um, where he's one of the youngest players in the Carolina League. So I, he's moving pretty quickly. He's got all these um, things going for him offensively. There are questions about whether he's a shortstop in the long run. I don't really think it matters particularly. Uh, in the Indians organization, he's not going to play shortstop. Uh, he, might, he might actually be the guy that succeeds Lindor, depending on how all the timing works. Uh, but I think that even if that happens, you're, you're looking at him being the Indian shortstop for like a year or two before one of the younger guys who's a better defender comes along and, and moves him over to second base. Um, but whether he starts at second or doesn't, um, you know, it's going to play as a, as an offensive second, uh, offensive first, second baseman. Yeah. With so many guys who are considered high, high upside types, uh, behind him, Bo Naylor, George Valera, Brian Rocchio, Daniel Espino, again, guys who people see a lot of potential in, but are super, super young. There's a lot of different ways they can go. How much discussion was there, you know, them versus Freeman and ultimately what was the, you know, percentage, if you will, of, of people saying, yeah, Freeman should be number two versus one of these other guys. I think at least within the organization, the Indians view it as 
Jones and Freeman have kind of separated from that younger group. Uh, you know, they're the ones that have proven it in at the higher levels. Uh, Bo Naylor did play in Lake County at, at low A all season long. The rest of them, for the most part, are um, a step or two behind. And so Jones and Freeman, having done it uh, at high A and in Freeman's case and in double A at Jones's case, uh, kind of gives them a little bit of a different feel. I think, at least for me, when you start looking at, at that Rocchio, Naylor, Valera group, um, I'm still having trouble sorting out which of those guys is the best, whereas Jones and Freeman, their advanced hit tools and their performance and, again, the, the levels at which they're doing it, um, kind of that, that's a bit of a separator for me, at least uh, to, to the next group. Now, one of those guys could very easily take off as they get deeper into full season ball and, you know, leapfrog at least one of Jones or Freeman, uh, and, and they could be the number one prospect next year. But as it stands, I think just the, the certainty, the consistency with which Jones and Freeman have done it are something that those other guys don't have yet. Yeah, so it's fair to say, again, Jones clear number one, Freeman clear number two. This next group of those young guys, Naylor, Valera, Rocchio, Spino on down, how flexible was that group? How fungible, if you will? Or, or was Naylor clear number three? You know, for me, I kind of feel like he and Valera were the – like it, you're it, trying to decide between the two of them. Now, you'll find people that really like Brian Rocchio. Uh, and if you put a Spino this high – uh, I don't think necessarily that would have been wrong either. So I, I, I do think this next group of four, uh, certainly th- there can be some, some mix there. You know, and honestly, it could go even deeper than that. If you want to put Tristan McKenzie here at three, uh, you know, he's coming off of a very confusing year in which he didn't pitch. Um, but you know, the, everything previous to that said that he was their number one prospect. And then you look at Hankins behind him, and, and he has a huge arm. And Aaron Bracho is a guy that a lot of people really, really like. And if you're just lining up the hit tools, uh, you know, he might have the best hit tool of this group. So honestly, three through nine is pretty flexible. It's, it's pretty open. Uh, Naylor gets the nod at three. He has done it at, you know, in full season ball. He has some very – not fully the the combination of his offensive skill and his ability to catch is pretty impressive. Now there are some things defensively he needs to work on the the defense behind the plate is not fully formed, but he has, he's a great athlete. Uh, The hit tool is impressive and he does have some ability behind the plate, particularly in the framing department. And so all of that combined, put together, that, that's a pretty special player, I think. Yeah, he was one of the more interesting guys uh, talking to evaluators about defensively. So one of the things that is true everywhere, we see it in the majors all the time, most you know, famous example of this is Yasmani Grandal. Being a good framer does not necessarily mean you're a good receiver and catcher. Being a good receiver and catcher does not necessarily mean you're a good framer. Bo Naylor was really, really interesting just hearing you know, everyone talk about this the framing numbers, a lot of teams are really trying to dive into, you know, framing metrics in the minors. He ranked among the best in the minors, elite pitch framer. 
as an actual defender, he was getting a lot of below average grades, well below average grades, just in terms of blocking, flexibility, pure receiving. So it was interesting kind of, you know, talking to evaluators about him and that difference. A lot of them saying, yeah, I did not care for him defensively, but they look at the framing metrics and that looked good. What did the Indians say about his defense? Again, young catcher, it's, there's a lot of development. How do you kind of assess his defense and, and where the biggest strides need to be made? Well, we, we aren't going to get into this on this podcast, but catcher as a position is going to change massively over the next decade is, is a pretty common prediction you're hearing right now that robot umps, their impact on the game could lessen pitch framing and, um, you know, how much stolen base is, you know, how much is the stolen base going to be uh, an impact on the game going forward. Uh, these things all very much affect what catchers do and what you need your catcher to do. So I don't know is, is the easy answer. Uh, the, the more nuanced answer is he's a really good pitch framer by most teams' metrics, it seems like. And I guess I would hang my head on that when we're talking about a teenager. He needs to improve a lot of things, clearly. Um, I also am not sure I'd be all that concerned about it. Again, he's a teenager who just caught something like 80 games in the Midwest League, which is very rare. And he's also just a really good hitter and a really good athlete that he was committed to Texas A&M before the Indians drafted him. And if he'd gone to A&M, he might have just played shortstop for them. Uh, he's not a big league shortstop, but that gives you an idea of what kind of athlete he is so that if catching doesn't work and he has to go play third base, he can go do that, or maybe you just let him run around in the outfield. You know, so I, I think that there are a lot of options. There are a lot of different paths he can go down right now, and it's going to be fascinating to see where that goes. But for now, the Indians are definitely developing him as a catcher. They really like his pitch framing. They're willing to work with him on some of the other stuff. And they understand that, you know, it, it's a developmental process. He doesn't need to be fully formed. He just spent the year in low A. There, there's still a few more runs on the ladder for him to climb and a lot of steps he has to take to get better to do that. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, the most important development, we we saw him really, really kind of explode offensively in August and then uh, the first couple of games in September. You know, like a lot of teenagers in the Midwest League, slow start, April, May, it's freezing. A lot of those guys struggle. Uh, had a really, really good June, slowed down in July, finished the season strong. And either way, this is a prospect who's been defined by his bat since he was drafted. Some evaluators thought he was the best prep hitter in the 2018 draft class, and that was a big reason why he was a first-round pick. So uh, we'll just see how that develops, but it does seem like there was a promising foundation there. You mentioned Valera being potentially the number four prospect uh, behind Naylor. What for you in this next group, Valera and Rocchio, two guys who were very, very highly touted uh, international signees, very young. They've shown some good things, some things they clearly need to work on. How do you kind of assess these two and ultimately what led you to stack them up the way you did? So my concern with Rocchio is impact, that he has a smaller frame and he does a great job at putting the bat on the ball. Um, he's a really aggressive hitter. It's, it's a hit over power, uh, and maybe eventually you'll, you'll start seeing, as he physically matures a little bit, you'll start seeing some of those line drives into the gap turn into home runs. Um, he is a very solid defensive shortstop. Uh, but when you look at Valera, there, there's no question about the impact. It's a, it's a big-time bat. Now, you're trading 
the the defensive value of Rocchio for you know a corner outfielder in in Valera but I I just think that the impact bat is special there and until Rocchio proves that he can you know that 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 his bat is, is going to be able to carry him a little bit more than, than it has been to this point I I, I I just want to bet on, on Valera's pure hitting ability and, and his chance to to hit for power and to hit for average. Uh, it's very it's very close though, and, you know. And if if somebody had Rocchio over Valera, I would not in any way, uh, you know, look askance at it. So I, I think, like I said, that this group right now that we're in, a lot of different ways you can line them up. I chose to go for what I believe to be more impact potential with the bat for Valera. Always bet on the bat. That is something that's been true across history when it comes to evaluating prospects over and over and over again. So I think it's a sound process there, that's for sure. The top five players in this system are all position players. Then you move into the pitchers, that six to eight range, three in a row, Daniel Espino, Tristan McKenzie, Ethan Hankins. I actually want to start with McKenzie. He was at one point the number one prospect in this system, was one of the best pitching prospects in baseball, a slam dunk top 100 guy. He did not pitch all of last year after missing a lot of 2018 as well due to injury. There's long been concern over his frame. He's big, he's 6'5", but he's very, very skinny. Where do things stand with Tristan McKenzie right now? First of all, just a general health update. And then how do you kind of assess a guy like this? Because like you said, you could see him as high as three or as low as you put him at seven. I know there were iterations where he was even lower on this list. If the belief is that he'll be healthy. Um now, his, his injuries the last couple of years are not necessarily linked. They generally do, though, kind of just stem from a lack of strength, it, it seems like, more than anything. And that is something that evaluators have been concerned about going back to when he was in, in high school. So to this point, it hadn't really been an issue. And then uh, this last year happened, and, and, and he didn't pitch at all. Um, due to a shoulder slash upper back uh, kind of muscle injury. And it just never really seemed to click for him. He should be on the mound in spring training. He should be ready to go pitch. Um, what exactly that's going to look like after a year off, uh, a year's layoff, I, I don't know. Um, I do know that I really like Tristan McKenzie the whole way through. Going back to his high school days, his, his his low minors, what he was doing in in the upper levels, the Indians obviously do a really good job at developing pitching, and he has a chance to be the next great one. It's kind of just a matter of him finding a way to stay on the on the field. The one thing to remember with him is that he is still very young. Uh, you know, he got to Double A as a twenty year old. We've been hearing about Tristan McKenzie for a long time, but he's still pretty young on the, the the overall scheme here so when you look at that there's there's still physical development to be done here but there's still also some time to believe that he might be able to make some of it he's n clearly never going to fill out the frame completely he's always going to be skinny uh, it's really just a matter of him learning how to manage all of that how to manage the workload and that's the biggest question mark. He, he is a total wild card on this list. You could place him almost anywhere in the top 10. And, you know, it, it, it's just kind of going to be a, a matter of what he looks like going forward. And, and that's a mystery to everyone.
Yeah, you know, I feel like the talent he showed going back to 2017 at High Lynchburg, where we all saw him, he actually threw 143 innings that year, held up strong throughout the season. And, you know, on talent, and again, he was also really good in double A too, as a 20 year old that had a 2680 RA, walks were reasonable, strikeout was fine. Um, everything was really, really good. It just, it's health with him. I feel like on talent, you could still argue he could be the number one guy on this list. It's just, you don't know what you're going to get with him health wise. Yeah, and it's possible. Like, this year is now a really big year for him, right? Because either he goes out and he's healthy, he has a big year, and in that case, he's quite probably making his big league debut, or he again struggles with health, and then we have to take a very serious long look at what exactly does all of this mean. So, you know, he gets a bit of a mulligan. Obviously, he dropped from number one, but he still gets a bit of a mulligan for what happened. Now it's going to be all about what he does in 2020 to show that he's healthy. And I'm not saying that he has to go out there and, and, and amaze everyone in Columbus or else you know, we, we need to really be concerned. But he does need to show some amount of health in 2020 or else you, know, that you do have to start to wonder what the future looks like for Tristan McKenzie. He's right in between two very young right-handers who were very, very well-known to scouts in high school, Daniel Espino and Ethan Hankins. Each of them had their moments where they were considered the number one pitching prospect in their respective draft classes. Uh, Ultimately, both fell a little bit come draft time. Hankins, 35th overall pick in 2018. Espino, 24th overall in 2019. Still among the top pitchers taken, just not the number one guy. We saw Hankins and Espino actually got up there too at the end, advanced to short season Mahoning Valley. Where do things stand with these two and, and how much upside is there with each of these guys? Because it seems like there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of things people like. It's just with high school right-handers, you always are a little bit cautious. Yeah, there, there's a ton to like with, with both of them. They both have premium arm strength. They both have a really good uh, breaking ball. They both have, have done a, you know, the, the, the track record as amateurs is, is long and very good. Uh, Espino is moving lightning fast for an Indians uh, pitcher. He was the first player since Lindor to the first prep player drafted by the Indians since Lindor uh, to reach short season in his, in his, during his professional debut. And they've not shied away from drafting prep players in the last decade. So for him to be the one to do it uh, is impressive. And, you know, everyone talks with him about how mature he is, how professional ready he was. Um, he, he went to a baseball academy for high school. The, the school's logo is literally a baseball. <laughs> so he's been, he's been thinking about baseball almost nonstop since he moved to the U.S. from Panama when he was 15. So it's not really a surprise he was really ready for the professional environment. But he took the opportunity. He ran with it. and the he he has as much potential as anyone in the system really um you know we'll we'll see where he gets to it we'll see where hankins gets to it who has similar impressive upside those guys both have have big time arms and i'm very excited to see how they handle uh you know the the their their next steps espino probably is going back to mahoning valley but with him and how like i said he's already moved faster than what the indians template is so i don't maybe he goes to lake county uh, where, where he's with uh, where he's with Hankins next year, and, and that would be very exciting to see those guys in a rotation together. 
Absolutely. I think it's something that Indians fans are, are rightly excited about, and especially knowing the track record this organization has at developing pitching prospects. For a long time, it was guys they acquired in trades, but this most recent wave is a lot of guys that they drafted themselves, Shane Bieber being at the front of that. There's a lot of reason to be bullish on these, uh, these two right-handers' potential. We talked about how young this group is. Seven of the 10 are currently teenagers. Uh, the back to Aaron Bracco and Gabriel Rodriguez, uh, two very, very young international signees. Ultimately, what led these two to be numbers 9 and 10 in the system? And were they slam dunks at 9 and 10? Or how close was it? Bracco was a slam dunk as well. Uh, he really impressed people in the Arizona League this year. He had, I mean, you talked about uh, Valera and, and Rocchio as being high-end international signings. Bracco, I think, may have gotten more money than both of them uh, when they signed. And they're all international market classmates. Uh, he certainly was a bigger deal than Rocchio when he signed. The problem for Bracco is that he missed all of 2018 due to an arm injury. So those two guys, um, I mean, actually, Valera was uh, injured most of 18 as well. Rocchio really got to get a lot of the buzz uh, during 18 when when, uh, when Valera and, and Bracho were both out. He was able to go out and tear it up. Well, Bracho now is a, a little bit behind them because of that injury, but he was super impressive down, down in the Arizona League. He's a switch hitter. It's just fantastic bat speed, really good bat. Uh, it is right now a second baseman, and he's not going to be a shortstop. So there is going to be just a little less um, defensive value. But much like with Tyler Freeman, he has the kind of offensive ability where it's not going to matter probably. Uh, Gabby Rodriguez at 10, that could have gone a number of different ways. Logan Allen, uh, you know, who came over in that Bauer, Puig, three-team, Fran Mel Reyes deal, um, and then pitched in Cleveland for a little bit. Uh, he could have been in, right in that spot. You know, Bobby Bradley, a familiar name to Indians fans, as a top 10 prospect who also has uh, been in Cleveland. He could have been there. Uh, you know, so there were some options. Gabby Rodriguez's upside, though, is, is exceptional. He's another big-time international shortstop in an organization that has a ton of them. Uh, he was the headliner in the 2018 international class, the Valera, Rocchio, Bracho group is the year before. So Rodriguez is the uh, year behind them. Uh, but he's, uh, he, he had a very impressive pro debut himself uh, and got to the Arizona League you know, in his first professional season. So he's, uh, he's looking good. The, the ceiling is really high with him. He is, however, extremely far away right now. Um, what kind of developmental track he'll take will, will be interesting to see. He probably is going to go back uh, to the Arizona League in 2020, and maybe you'll see him in Mahoning Valley late in the summer. Yeah, you know, two young middle infielders, a lot of promise is certainly not a bad place to be if uh, those are your number nine and 10 prospects. Because you mentioned them, I do want to check in on Logan Allen and Bobby Bradley. Each of them has history as top 100 prospects. Uh, they both made their major league debuts last year. Uh, just what's the status on those two? And, and realistically, what can Indians fans expect from them in 2020 and beyond? Well, Logan Allen, the Indians saw him in the bullpen. And that was kind of just a matter of of how things were working for the Indians after they acquired him. Uh, that's not necessarily representative of where they see him going forward. So he's going to go, they're going to try him as a starter. He'll be in the mix. Um, you know, we'll see what kind of job he wins. The Indians obviously have a lot of young depth uh, on their pitching staff on all levels, um, but they're very excited about Logan Allen. Scouts have been very excited about Logan Allen since his high school days. 
he got to the big leagues pretty quickly. There's still some developmental work to be done there. Uh, the Indians have gotten very good, though, at finishing guys in, in AAA and, and even in, in the big leagues. So I expect that you will see Logan Allen. Actually, I, you will see Logan Allen in Cleveland this year. Uh, we'll see exactly what role that's in, uh, but they're, they're very excited about him. Bobby Bradley, you know, it's, uh, he, he got there. He showed off some of that big-time power. He also showed off some of that swing and miss that goes with it. That's just going to be who Bobby Bradley is at this point. He is still pretty young. Uh, yeah, that, that is something that, that does have to be remembered. I think that he's in a bit of a tough spot in terms of where does he fit on the Indians roster right now. Um, just as, again, if they're going in on 2020, it's kind of hard to see where Bobby Bradley fits with uh, you know, Santana, and some of the other guys that, that can play first base, like Dick Bowers. Uh, where does Branmel Reyes play? Is he DHing? Is he in the outfield? So it, you know, and if he's a DH, that takes away a spot that, that maybe Bobby Bradley could fill. So Bobby Bradley has done just about everything he can do in the minor leagues. He really needs a chance to play in Cleveland. I just don't know if this is going to be the year that that, that comes together for him. Uh, but if he keeps hitting in Columbus uh, or in spring training or wherever, he, and I fully expect him to keep showing off some mammoth power, uh, you know, he'll, he'll keep getting opportunities and he just has to be ready to take advantage of them. And now that he's seen the big leagues, you know, you got that first taste. Now, now you understand a little bit better what it takes to, to be successful up there. Maybe he'll be in a little bit better position in 2020 to take, uh, take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, yeah, Bradley in his debut last year, 20 strikeouts and 49 plate appearances. But with that, also five doubles and a home run. So you see the power, you see the strikeouts. And like you said, it'll be interesting to see what adjustments uh, he can make based off that experience. And I had some history with Logan Allen, ranking him in the Padres system for a number of years. And I think the good thing about him fitting with the Indians here too is he doesn't have to be a mid to front rotation guy. They can just let him, you know, potentially grow into a number four or five starter where most evaluators thought he would be, you know, best suited when you have Shane Bieber, you have Mike Clevenger. You saw Zach Plesek come up last year. Carlos Carrasco is still around. Obviously, we have to see what his health status is. It's not a situation where they're banking on Logan Allen to be a guy for them. If he just comes up and is able to do a little bit the back of the rotation, maybe do some swingman work for them, that's all they're going to need from him. So it feels like he's in a good spot just in terms of what they need from him and where he is in his development. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely fair. And, and that versatility that he has, because he does have experience doing both, uh, that, that's only going to serve him well, especially in 2020 and, and, and beyond, though. I, he's gonna, they're going to find a way to use Logan Allen. If you have a left-hander that throws like that, you'll find a way to get him on the mound. Yeah, in some ways, I think it's feasible that of all their prospects, he's the one that makes uh, the biggest impact, if you will, in 2020, although we have to see exactly what that looks like. And all it takes is a few injuries and uh, things can surprise and go in ways you can't project. Teddy, just before we wrap up here, you know, we hit on it earlier that this is a team that has the pieces to contend, even after the Corey Kluber trade. And given the use of their farm system, attempting to compete in 2020 is probably the right way to go. Long term, where do you see the Indians stacking up? Just because, again, most people believe that Francisco Lindor will not re-sign with the Indians. How do things look for them in the 2020s as a whole, would you say? I don't see any reason why they can't largely be much like they were in the second half of the 2010s. You know, the, the last decade 
opened with them in a pretty significant rebuild. They had just traded um, in successive fashion, uh, Sabathia, Lee, and Victor Martinez, among others, and were ushering in a, a new group. I don't know that they are going to need to go through some sort of major teardown uh, in the 2020s. I know they, they very much don't want to do that. Even if Lindor goes, um, you know, and, and that would end an era uh, in Cleveland for sure. Uh, and, and it is very reasonable to expect that he will not be in Cleveland for more than the next couple of years. You know, I, I, I don't see why that the franchise has to take a significant step back. Jose Ramirez is on a very team-friendly deal. The pitching staff is very young right now, but very talented. There are, uh, in, you know, solid foundational pieces to build around. And while the farm system right now doesn't rank all that great, a lot of that just has to do with how young it is. And if these kids continue to develop at the rate that they're expected to, um, they the Indians could have a top five farm system within the next year or two. So if all of that comes together, there will eventually be a, a step back. Like that definitely will happen at some point, and and that won't entail winning 93 games but missing the playoffs. That I'm, I'm talking more like they win 82 to 85 games, maybe a couple years in a row. But I, I don't think that this is a I, I don't think that the way it's set up means that they have to be um, bad for a couple of years or even terrible for a couple of years to, to get it restarted. I, and I don't think that the, the way the front office views the, the organization that they want any part of that right now. Um, so I, I think the 2020s should entail the Indians mostly being in contention in the AL Central. There are no juggernauts in the AL Central. There's no reason for there to be a juggernaut in the AL Central unless the White Sox completely change the course of their franchise's history. Um, you know, so as long as it's a very competitive division, the Indians should be in the mix year in and year out. Absolutely, and we'll see if they're able to do that. Again, there's a lot of talent currently in the big leagues. There's some talent coming up the minors, even if it's a few years away. And I think the Indians, just their front office, their pro scouting department, they've earned the right to take the over with them. They're going to be a franchise that you expect to find ways to compete and contend through great trades, through smart signings and any other avenues are necessary to put a winning product on the field. Teddy, thank you so, so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight as always. Absolutely. Always good time. All right, everyone. That'll do it for this edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Teddy Cahill, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.